The Alien Chronicles. You know, America really has expanded me beyond my own grasp. I never thought I would have such a wide world view. I want to be seen as a human being. I am an American. Before, like, I didn't have a piece of paper that told me I was an American, but I still consider myself an American. Everybody's involved. It means everybody has an opinion. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Sometimes you can change people's perspective through just having a good conversation. Their destinies and their security was going to be shaped by the changes in U.S. policy from one administration to the next, or the fact that it doesn't seem to change much. Hello and welcome to the Alien Chronicles. I'm your host, Sadia Khan. Our today's guest is an immigrant from Afghanistan. Rishad Ahmadi was born and raised in Afghanistan. He worked for 10 years on a U.S.-funded reconstruction project in Afghanistan until insurgents targeted him for his affiliation with the United States. Now Rishad is here on a special immigration visa, SIV, to the United States. These visas are made available to those who have worked two or more years for the U.S. government and military in Afghanistan and are at risk of violence because of it. Rishad is working as an assistant project manager at a local engineering and surveying company. Rishad is also an ambassador of the Westchester Refugee Initiative, helping to spread the word about immigrants. Welcome, Rishad. So happy to have you here. Thank you very much, Sadia. Thanks for giving me the chance to share my story with your audience. So we'll start from the very beginning. Um, You grew up at the time of Russian withdrawal from Afghanistan, and then the civil war broke when you were still a kid. What was it like growing up during conflict? Well, yes, indeed. I was born in time of Russian withdrawal from Afghanistan, and I grew up in the Civil War. So as a child, I was taught that this might be a normal life for all people around the world. And as I grew up, I learned that we are lacking a normal life, and the peaceful life was always a dream for every single one. Every day, people had been killed, and every night we had to take cover in the basement because of the incoming blind rockets and missiles towards our city. And you would be enough lucky that your house was not hit on that night. But I have witnessed many of our neighbors and houses has been hit, and the whole family was killed in the house. So we were not able to freely travel from one part of the city to other part of the city, And because of that, the part was being controlled by other ethnical groups. So basically, you were from the other ethnical group, so you were definitely, without any reason, you were a target to be had. So they did not hesitate to kill you or harm you in any way or put you in a prison, their own private prisons. The power transmission lines were cut off. We were out of power for so many years, and... The food items were limited for the people, and people started starving up to the dead because there was no connection outside of the cobble, and then the roads were blocked, and we had so much limited access to our neighbor countries. The only way that we were able to get some of the food items or have some basic supplies were Pakistan and going to crossing the border of Torham and then getting to Peshawar, Pakistan. This was the only way, but it was risky because you have to travel all the road with so many risks and so many other ethnical groups and and jihadists and everyone was aiming to harm everybody and in that situation. How many people were in your family? 
I grew up in a family. I'm the eldest of five children. So I have three brothers, three other brothers and two sisters still living in Afghanistan. And what was, because as you described, you grew up during conflict and every day was a nightmare. But what was one thing that scared you the most and one thing that gave you solace and comfort at the same time? Well, as a child, I don't think I had that much of a grown-up's think mindset because I thought this is a normal life and then growing in a conflict zone was like, okay, people are getting killed, the rockets are coming, and then we were on, on our way to our only school that was open on that day. So when we were commuting to our school, it, I saw too many distractions of caused by those rockets and then people with the guns, no uniforms, so everybody had their own private guns and ammunition. So it was kind of, I thought on the, those days that I'm, I'm um, it is a normal life, but since I grew up, I learned, no, this is not a life. This is not a normal life because we were not able to, we, we didn't got any access to the TV or satellite TVs to see outside world, what are they doing, what was the outside world. But I heard the stories from my parents because my father were explaining, oh, in 1960s, there were Kabul was, people were going outside. We had so many good days back in 1960s up to 65s and he was explaining that the women were allowed to wear mini skirts outside and they were working outside and it was it was like never acceptable for me that in Kabul is it is, was it possible that someday it was like that so this was kind of giving a hope for our childhood but because we were hopeful that someday this might may or will pass but in the the meantime we were experiencing this like continuously and then we considered ourselves lucky because we were at least living in a part of the Kabul city that was like only controlled by so-called Islamic government, which they supposed to be the legitimate government of Afghanistan at that time. But still they were, they had like too many of those insurgents and uh, uprisings against them. And then they were fighting for the power. And how old were you when you started to see things change, things get better? And when did you start experiencing that? So when the civil war was ongoing and then Somehow we heard that because of there was too many groups of Mujahideen were fighting between each other. So I was in ninth class of my school when I heard there's a group uprised from southern Afghanistan called Taliban. And they are good people because they are taking over every other groups and then they are trying to implement Islamic religious Sharia law government and they are helping people. So there was a lot of rumors ongoing, and then we were starting hearing about them because they're taking over a lot, too many territories in Afghanistan, and they were expanding all over. And then day by day, it was, they were growing. And then I remember one night I was sleeping and when I woke up in the morning, and then I went outside, everywhere was quiet enough because there were people with long beards and then uh, turbans, imamas, and then they were like, they were very much unfamiliar looking for me as a child on, on that, I mean, not a child, a teenager. And they had their white uh, flags and their cars were, they had a voice of this religious songs. And then 
I asked my friend, what's going on? And my neighbor was with me. The kids were outside. He said, okay, Taliban took over of Kabul. So everything was finished. So the Mujahideen has escaped from Kabul, and there was a vacuum of power, and then they took over Kabul. And then things changed rapidly because they were against every other values of life that we had before. So the things got worsened because they just, went to the radio and because on that time we didn't got any power and then TV was not running so they took over to the radio and then they call it no women are allowed to be going outside without any burqa or, or we call it chadri the whole coverage of for women and uh, girls are not allowed to go to school so the schools got closed and then they started the treating people that okay nobody will go outside I mean no man is allowed to shave their beard. So they have to grow beard, even if they are younger or uh, an old people. Step by step, they started limiting the values, the basic values of living for every Kabul and, and Afghanistan's residents. So things got worse. until I remember I was in a, my 10th grade, and then when I, and when I went to school on that day, my principal told me that, okay, from now on, you have to wear an imama if you're coming to the school. So at that time, I didn't got any beard, it's obviously, mm -hmm. but they, they wanted me to have imama. Without an imama, I was not allowed to go to school. So the things, and then one day was the 2001, 9-11 happened, and then things changed like that. So we started experiencing the new era of Afghanistan coming and everything was changing. So it seems like for you, things gotten worse like while you were growing up first it was like soviet withdrawal but then there was civil war but you had some stability during civil war Indeed. and some and then when taliban took over everything changed and what they were doing was much worse than what you had experienced even before that and then 9-11 happens and then you decide to work for the u.s government given everything that was happening in afghanistan why did you decide to do that? And what motivated you to take that bold step? As I mentioned, when 9-11 happened, and then it was something like we call it a landmark in the modern history of Afghanistan because things got rapidly changed because we were not even expecting that Taliban will go. I mean, we were just like thinking, okay, this is it. And we, were, we will die. Our generation will die having this Taliban because day by day they were getting powerful even. And we saw so many other nationalities between them. I, I, when I was going to, I had to go to a sports club when I was going there. And then I was experiencing people are coming from Saudi Arabia, from, from other countries, from other nationalists, Pakistanis, I mean, Chechenese. There were so many other nationalities between them. So we were thinking, okay, this is it and they will never go. But something happened and then 9-11 happened and then things changed and then the U.S. started bombarding their strongholds in Afghanistan. And then those nights were really nightmare because we were experiencing a lot of heavy bombardments on Kabul city and especially on their Taliban strongholds. So they started fleeing Kabul and this was really a good moment for the people. People were really hopeful and then they were they started shaving their long beards because everybody was thinking, okay, they will have to take out their TVs because somehow we were allowed to see TV. So people were hopeful that things are getting changed. So I was on my high school and then the new government has been uh, shaped on bond conference, if you remember, on the 2000, post of the 2001. And then... Um, the schools were opened and then everything got normal. 
people tried to transform themselves into a new era of living. And then our schools offered as again the normal curriculum. And then so I got graduated from high school. On those days, internet, computers, and, and then we were able to use satellite TVs and then CNN, BBC, or outside world. And then we were able to see our, my mom's and my family's favorite TV series in Indian and Pakistani TV. <laughs> so things changed, like everybody was having their own portion. I went to college. I applied for an engineering school in Afghanistan, which is being built and founded by Russians. It's called Kabul Polytechnic University. So I went to this college and I started studying my civil engineering. During that time, I started thinking with myself because it was my childhood dream to be an engineer, to build something. And at that time, I thought, okay, if I'm going to be graduated as a civil engineer, as a fresh graduate, so I, I, it's better to start from somewhere to be part of this coalition to rehabilitation of Afghanistan. So this was the main idea behind my decision to work for the U.S. And that the U.S.-funded projects were the only reasonable and, I mean, I mean, a good opportunity for our generation to work for. So the pay was good, and we were given a lot of opportunities to work and develop our career at that time. And I started working with the U.S. contractors, and then day by day, I had a lot of, I have this habit of researching a lot, going online and then researching on internet always. So I got myself a little bit, I improved my English a lot than I was studying in my school days. So my English level engineering degree and the ambition for rehabilitation got me into the position of a quality assurance manager for the U.S. contractor, a U.S. contractor back in Afghanistan, which my responsibility was overseeing those execution of those projects and the impact level of those projects on the local government and the local people. So this was my basic decision and then how I get to this U.S. contractor's job. So what are some of the risks that are associated with working with any U.S. agency in Afghanistan? Because you experienced it firsthand, right? Can you elaborate on that? And how did Taliban or insurgents come to know about it and they started threatening you? I'm, I'm sure that the length of the podcast would go over because I have a lot to say. Since I started working as a quality assurance, so in every person's case of receiving those risks were really different because it depended on the level of their interaction with the local people and and the U.S. Army. So my job was quality assurance. The quality assurance, I had to go to the, I mean, remote areas and prepare reports and submit it to the government and the U.S. Army. So I was being targeted. The people started noticing my activities because I was preparing reports on the whatever they were on background going on because you know that the, if you are in a, in a post-war country, everything is like mafias and, and, and black market and, and insurgents. Everybody is involved in these kind of businesses. So my reports were starting to be really taken seriously with the government and the U.S. Army and especially our, our company and it started to incentivize my activities. So the people were being notified that, okay, this is not good work that you're doing or, or why this 
taxpayers' money is spending on those areas which is not supposed to be spended. So they realize, okay, there's a person who is really reporting these issues. And then they started receiving phone calls, unknown numbers, and then, okay, if you wanted to live, just ignore and then leave your job, go to your city, do not come back here. Because I was going to the southern part of Afghanistan, to the eastern, and, and those were really strongholds of Taliban. And I had to be escorted with the armored vehicles to going to those locations. So this was my, it started to receive those serious threats against my activities. But if you are working as an interpreter and you're going on the live frontiers with the U.S. Army, so you are like more 100 person than target than me because interpreters are really targeted because they have to wear the same uniform as the U.S. Army looking or maybe the Afghan National Police and they have to wear helmets, they have to wear their bulletproof vests. So they were almost looking like Americans and then they started, okay, they are really helping American and invaders and infidels to take over our country or invade our country. So they're the primary target. I'm sure somehow Taliban tried to harm those people who were working for the U.S. Army because they thought they are the front line helping the invaders. So we have to remove them. This was the main. So everybody was experiencing really difficult level of serious threats receiving from insurgents. Mine was like I received threats by phone calls. I received written letters in my house. And even they started treating my wife when she was commuting to her work with my kids. Because in Afghanistan, she was working outside for the government, for the civil service of Afghanistan. One day she came, she was crying really, and then she was begging me that please resign from your job because somebody approached me today and then treated me that if your husband's not going to stop working with the U.S. Army or or, US, or they call it the invaders, we will kill your kids. So she was really worried and I said, okay, calm down. It's a normal life because everybody's being killed over the street because nobody knew if I go, if I was going to the, let's say, grocery shop, and I didn't know who's going to blow himself between people. So this was kind of getting a normal life back in our, like, civil war days because everybody was seeming to be a target. But I calmed down her and told her, cherished her, that, okay, this is a normal life. If I stop working for the company that I'm working, so who's going to support us? Because the pay I'm receiving, I have too many dependables on myself, so I have to support you, my kids, and my family, my parents, and, and siblings. This was getting normal, but the worst case that happened to me was the one night I was coming back from my work and, and I was driving back home. Uh, suddenly, it was 7.30 p.m. at a spring night that uh, suddenly an SUV caught my way and then in a matter of seconds, I, I saw four gunmen, masked unknown men, get off the car and they started shouting and me to stop your car, stop. And then I stopped by the matter of seconds. They broke my windshields with the um, guns, and then they start hitting me. And they took me out of the car, and they start hitting me with a lot of those. I still have those marks on my back that I received those hit by the guns. And then they pulled me over and then told me that consider yourself a luckiest guy that today we are giving you back your life. So if you don't listen to us, we will kill you. Next time, there is no next time, even. There is no next time. So. 
consider yourself a lucky guy that we are leaving you alive today. So they pushed me over to the corner of the road and I was fall down to the corner of the road and they took my car, my wallet, my, my, my laptop, my, my phone, everything. And then they turned apart my clothes, my jacket, and I was desperately falling in the corner of the street. And I was so... I had no idea what was, I mean, still, I don't know how I was feeling, how that moment passed, but I really consider myself lucky that today I'm sitting in front of you and having this conversation because I, on that moment, I saw all my dreams going to the hell and then I didn't think that I might be alive next day, how my kids will do, how... The future that I'm thinking is gone. Everything is, everything is gone because you see yourself between four gunmen and it's only take a second that they pull the trigger and kill you. At that moment, I was a desperate person and I ran to my house and when my wife opened the door, she saw me on that moment and with that situation, she would start crying and yelling and I, I calmed her and said, okay, this is it. My father told me that now it's the time you have to think about to get yourself into the safety place. So the only way that I was able to do this, because the SIB program was already in place from back in 2009, so we are talking about 2016. Up to that time, despite of receiving those treats, I didn't apply for SIB because I really love my country. I did want to be the part of rehabilitation. I didn't want to be going outside and far away from my parents, from my friends, from my future. Everything I have built for the life was there. So I didn't thought to be leaving everything behind and coming over into a new place. But on that moment, I thought, okay, this is it. If I want my kids to be living and I, if I want myself to be alive to help them, so I have to be thinking otherwise. I wrote to the U.S. Embassy, and after a month or a couple of months, I received the reply from the COM approval that they approved my situation. I explained in my letter what happened to me and that, what I was doing. So there was a procedure that you have to be very, I mean, you have to prove to the U.S. Embassy that you have worked for the U.S. Army contractors or the U.S. Army itself, and then your claim should be legitimate, so I had my police records, everything was there. And then um, after a couple of months, I was approved for that visa. And then the process, the long-awaited process of visa application started. And it took me about 18 months, the whole process. And then I got my visa and the visa has been issued. From that time, I resigned from my primary job and I started looking for a local company, which was very limited into the city. So I was not supposed to travel outside the city. And then I was just hoping that one day my visa will be issued and I will get my kids out of this country. Then let's hope for the future. The experience must have been so traumatic. And I would like our listeners to understand the reason why somebody would choose to leave their own country where they were born, where they were raised. They have a family and then move to a new country. So these are the nuances of being an immigrant and, and every immigrant has a different story and your story is so moving. Obviously you were working with the US government in Afghanistan and then you risked your life to help US government and US troops. What were some of your expectations when, from American people and your life here when you came? And how is reality similar or different from what your expectations were coming to the US? 
everything depends on a personal experience. My experience was like I had so much of this general information before coming to the U.S. I already knew all about the American history because I'm a little bit of online guy, so I learned online. I was, and I had my colleagues from the U.S. there explaining me the way, the style of life, the cost of life, everything, and then where to live, where to choose to live, where is the best places in the U.S. because it, it's a large country. I had some previous information and I knew about how these really serious matters in the U.S., which is called the racial issues, the immigrant issues, and, and then the other consequences. But since I was expecting what I have received, the kind of welcome and hospitality and, and sympathy from the people in the New York State, I really was not expecting that much because I was expecting the same that our our friends were really treated like in, in, in the other states. I don't want to name them because I don't I didn't register myself for a party yet. But still, there was so many other factors people were really experiencing, like racial, like immigrants. There's a misconception because it takes really a courage to leave everything behind and go to other place and call to be an alien. It's really, really, really hard for somebody to digest because for me I had all my life everything I have built I have worked for I have really worked hard and leaving everything behind really took courage because you want to live the first factor for your living is if you want to have a future you have to be living so I left everything behind I came here and I was expecting some sympathy because this misconception should be gone because Today, the world is called the global village because everybody knows about everyone. I'm sure if a little bit of research to be done, this misconception will be gone because people will start knowing, no, these immigrants are really not... I mean, the basic fear that people has is if the immigrants are coming, they are taking away the welfare or, let's say, the opportunities of welfare or, or job opportunities, but it's not the reality. There's too many other immigrants coming to this country. They're contributing to the economy and then contributing a lot to this country because if you go to the history of this country, there's a lot of people coming from outside doing a lot to this country. So this misconception has to be gone because every people has experienced a lot of serious threats against him. And believe me, nobody will be willing to leave everything behind and going for nothing. So there is a real threat, real, real serious threats against them that they're leaving their country and then coming to this country. My experience when I came to New York State, the amount of sympathy, empathy, and kindness and warm welcome I received from the New York, especially Westchester, was really unpredictable for me. And uh, I mean, I was not expecting, but I really admire and appreciate the amount of love and support I received from the Westchester community and especially from Westchester Refugee Initiative, which is an umbrella for all other agencies that who has helped us to get resettled here. What was the biggest cultural shock you experienced though? Like, I'm sure there must be something that you were like, oh my God, despite having done all the research and everything, one thing that you were not really expecting. As I said, I had my previous informations, but for me, the biggest shock was because in Afghanistan, there is only one religion. When I came here, the biggest shock that I was, I mean, I, I didn't go, I didn't have this experience before. I didn't witness this kind of, I call it coexisting because it's, it's you see Jewish 
Muslim, Hindu, Christian, everybody is practicing multi-faith, but they're living close to each other in same community and same society, and they're sharing the same kind of love and support to each other. So it's, it's really, uh, I mean, I don't call it a shock. I really was surprised at how people get together. I mean, coexisting is really a matter of factor for me that uh, really affected my experience. And I, I'm really happy that whatever people are hearing about Western cultures outside is not 100% true. Because if you come here, you can be anything. You can be a Muslim, you can be a Christian. Nobody will force you to leave your religion or, or your beliefs or your faith, but you have to choose your own faith and, and religious and practice the way you want, the way you dress, the way you clothe yourself. So this was the biggest shock I have experienced in the U.S. And how is your family adjusting in the U.S., like your wife, your kids? At first, we were really in a position that we had to adjust, we had to compromise. So I learned the word compromise here because compromise is like you have to give away something to take something. My wife, I was lucky enough, I, I really do admire her hard work that she is an educated woman. She has a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering. She was already working for the U.S., I mean, Afghan government back there. So she already was speaking English. She knew how to speak English. But my kids were really little. I have a daughter of six years old and a son of four years old. So when we came here, they were four, five and three. And they have never heard of English, any word before. So that was really hard for them. And we have experienced a lot of challenges, not in terms that we, we were so much surprised or something like that, but we challenges were like basic daily lifestyle. We have to change, we have to accept, we have to compromise, and then we have to get ourselves ready to go on with this kind of life. So it was a little bit of challenge, and I, I really admire the, the amount of support that those people who has helped us from Westchester uh, Refugee Initiative um, groups, they were helped us to smoothly overcome these challenges and then get used and then uh, adjust ourselves to this society and new life. But... Right now, um, I'm happy because my kids, at the first, they were not able to speak English, even at a word. But right now, my son is trying, I mean, started to forgetting our own language, Persian. <laughs> I'm really uh, worried about that. I try, I'm trying hard to. It's funny because the first, you force him to learn English. And now he learned English. He started forgetting my own language. And I'm starting to tell him, no, you, you have to learn two languages because... And then I'm explaining every night to him, okay, we are from here, from Afghanistan. We have to have our own language, and then we have to have, you have to speak English outside of the household. So this was a little bit of challenging. Right now, my wife is um, really taking over all the responsibilities of paperwork, everything she is doing right now is cool, cats. We are doing well. I'm happy um, the way we receive support from this community, local uh, communities here. It's unimaginable. So we adjusted ourselves. I'm so glad to hear that. And I think what you're explaining is story of every immigrant, like trying to balance between the culture that you come from and the culture that you have adopted, whether it's the language, whether it's what you're teaching your kids. So I think it's a beautiful story. So what are some of the things that you would want your listeners to know about Afghani people and Afghanistan? Because again, what they see on media, and there are so many misconceptions about 
women and men and the patriarchy and what are some of the things that you would want as an Akhwani for them to know? I'm happy you asked me this question because uh, there was no other place to explain this because everybody was asking about what was the war in Afghanistan? What was uh, the situation you experienced? But nobody asked me what was the uh, Afghanistan? How is Afghanistan? How is the people? I consider myself as a first Afghan family in the Westchester and especially I think, and I'm sure about it, and White Plains. So I'm the only <laughs> Afghan here coming. I'm the Christoph Colombo of Afghans in White Plains, <laughs> I call myself. Afghans are really having a rich culture. We have a 5,000 years of rich culture, and, and there's a proof of that, because we call ourselves the Aryans, which are really native inhabitants of Northern uh, Asia. We have a multi-language country. Everybody has their own language, multi-culture. We have a lot of beautiful landscapes in Afghanistan. I can name the Bandi Amir, which is a really good place. I have been there for so many times. We have a very, too much delicious foods in Afghanistan, which I really miss them already. People are really developed. I mean, our women are going outside, working in the offices. They are taking over government responsibilities. We have women in the cabinet of Afghanistan right now, uh, a functional cabinet uh, members. We have um, women joining our military and national police, which is really, I mean, uh, uh, the most uh, uh, achievement that our people got is this because women were getting part of our military. Education is really uprising because everybody is getting their higher education and we have too many new private universities has been opened all over Afghanistan. English is kind of being our second language in Afghanistan. Everybody started speaking English and it's really good because if you help, I mean, my grandparents always told me that if you, if you know one language, you have one person. If you know two languages, you are two persons. So basically in Afghanistan, every single person, if you say, I don't want to misjudge, but 30 person, I can say people are talking about three languages, which is Indian, Urdu is the most because everybody know our language. So people had so many achievements in, in, let's say, sports, because everything was newly built in Afghanistan. The pace that our people are really developing in Afghanistan is not comparable to our neighbors. Our technology, our social interaction, social media usage, activity, activists in social media is really amazing. If you go over online and see, we have so many tremendous people going online and sharing social issues and, and arguing about truth, which was really unpredictable. I mean, I was not even imagining that someday a person go online on social media and complaining about our president, our, our government, because on that time, if I correctly remember, if you say any word against your government, you you have already sentenced yourself to the debt. So this is really development. Afghans are really hardworking people. If, you, if they have been given the chance and opportunity, they will prove themselves. I am really happy for the new generation of Afghanistan and hopefully they will be really impacting the future of this war-torn country. And what is your hope for the future of Afghanistan? It was always my dream that when they the new generation, the younger generation of Afghanistan take over the control of our government. 
and a new ideology will come and the ancient ideology of cultural and, and these things will go away. And I'm hopeful for that because currently we have thousands of people of younger generation are outside the Afghanistan and they are studying their master's degree, their, their PhDs. When they are going back to Afghanistan, they really impact the future. And I'm hopeful for that. And I hope I will be someone in the future to be take a part with that. Still, I am hopeful and I'm trying hard and, and I'm explaining for my kids that Afghanistan is someday is going to be a better place than today. And you will experience something new in Afghanistan. And if you were to describe America in one word, what would that be? Well, that's hard. Everybody <laughs> has their own experience. I don't know how people will uh, say about my my uh, judgment, but I, as they say, I ex- describe America and land of opportunity, as always. There is an opportunity if you have the will. That, that's absolutely true. So, Rishad, this was... Great. I mean, your interview was so inspiring and so moving. It was my pleasure. Now we'll move on to our rapid fire round, though. So this is where we ask fun questions, and then we get to know you a bit more. So we'll start with the first question. It's getting really tough. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll start with the first question. Reading books or listening to music? I think it's a failure in my life that I'm really lazy in reading books, so I'll go with the listening music. And if you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? That would be Afghani rice kabuli palau. And I hope if I didn't get weight, I will definitely go with that. Yeah, I've I've tried kabuli rice and that's the best dish you can have. I mean, um, whenever I'm, I'm at the house and I try to cook kabuli because it's really delicious, I really admire that. And if you could take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? Well, apart from my family and my wife and kids, <laughs> I don't, uh, talking about the things will be my iPod, the Game of Thrones DVDs and a laptop <laughs> to watch it. <laughs> Name three things on your bucket list. That will be a huge house, which accommodate all my household and, and my parents. To do my professional license, which I really working on that and speaking Spanish, it's really a requirement I have to <laughs> admit yeah. it. Yeah. When you are living in New York, you have to learn. I mean, Spanish is almost everywhere. So I think, yeah, despite knowing a lot of, I mean, other languages that I know right now, I can communicate with my neighbor countries. I really want to learn uh, how to speak Spanish. If you could have any superpower, what would that be? Well, I think that question should go to my son because he's really a superman. (laughs) Um, I think if I had that power, I would definitely destroy all the stockpiles of ammunition all around the globe. That's the main reason that people are killing each other. Absolutely. That's, that's such a beautiful answer. Your biggest failure so far? That's hard. Um, so I, I don't have to name it, but a decision made in my early 20s, I made. And your biggest achievement? Supported my wife to work outside the house. Absolutely. Describe yourself in three words. Hardworking, passionate, and introvert. Introvert? You don't come um, across as an introvert. That's the kind of I'm working on it to be an extrovert. Before coming to the U.S., I, I really don't uh, knew about introvert and extrovert. But <laughs> when I came here, I went to the office. And, and from the time I say hello to my receptionist in the office, and at the end of the day, saying goodbye, that's all my three words we're using in the office most of the day. So I think I considered myself an introvert working on it. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you ever got? To believe in yourself and have 
and leave other things to the destiny. Your idea of vacation? Well, a forest, a small wooden house, and a large lake. You should go to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely no power on internet. Really? Oh my God. I, <laughs> that you'll get away from everything. I, oh, I it, it became a habit for me just going online and checking for the news because I'm really, really working on, I mean, really passionate about news, what's going on all around the globe. It was funny, I, I want to tell that, because I, I came here and somehow in a discussion with a friend, uh, Venezuela, a country in uh, Northern America, I mean, Central America came into our discussion and I started explaining a little bit of the, the situation, how the Hugo Chavez and the president is Oh my God, you're from Afghanistan. How do you know about Venezuela? I said, okay, this is not a normal thing. I am not normal. So <laughs> I'm going all on everything. I know about news. Your all-time favorite movie? That's a, a little bit funny. Uh, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I really admire that. <laughs> Best Afghani restaurant in New York City. To be honest, I, I haven't found it yet. There oh, is none. <laughs> I mean, I have been to many of those restaurants, but I haven't found the best. So still Aww. searching for that. Favorite emoji? That's a winking face with a tongue. I really like that, using a lot. Tea or coffee? Definitely tea. Tea, right? I really, yeah. yeah. Green tea. Uh, our tea is really simple than the other countries. So it's only uh, green leaf, dried leaves, and hot water. That's it. And home is? I think happiness and family. Thank you so much, Rishad, for sharing your story. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to share my story and then have a word with our your audiences. And it was a pleasure having this time and discussion. And I hope this, whatever I explained in my uh, this conversation will affect somehow the people who are, have some misconceptions or having a little bit of knowing about Kabuli Palau of Afghanistan. <laughs> Absolutely. This was such an informative and inspiring interview. And I would also like to thank all the listeners for joining us today. And please subscribe to our podcast. We are on nine platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. Also, if you have a story to share or any new ideas, please contact us at theadianchronicles at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at chroniclesalien. And you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected.